welcome to Golden Grenades, a podcast about birds with stories from those who worship them, all set against the heartwarming backdrop of the end of the world. My special guest this week is Stephen Moss. Stephen is one of Britain's leading nature writers, broadcasters and wildlife television producers. His TV credits include the BAFTA award-winning Spring Watch, The Nature of Britain and Birds Britannia, while his books include Wild Hares and Hummingbirds, Mrs Moreau's Warbler and biographies of the Robin, Wren and Swallow. He writes a regular monthly birdwatch column for The Guardian, is president of the Somerset Wildlife Trust and teaches an MA in travel and nature writing at Bath Spa University. A lifelong naturalist now living on the Somerset levels, Stephen has travelled to all seven of the world's continents in search of wildlife. Stephen, hello and welcome to Golden Grenades. Hello, Kit. Really nice to be here. Thanks so much for being on the show. How are you? Very well, considering we're in lockdown number 97 or whatever it is. Yeah, it feels that way, doesn't it? Everything's dragging on and difficult to see the light at the end of the tunnel, I think. But hopefully later this year, we'll get back to some sort of normality. But as you know, this podcast imagines a world that's very far from normal, a world where our misuse of the planet has created an environmental disaster of Armageddon-esque proportions. And you can only choose five species of bird to save and survive with you once the dust settles. And if that was not depressing enough, you must choose one of your five favourite birds to go up against my favourite, the peregrine falcon, of which the bald fists of fury give this podcast its name. And speaking of names, the name peregrine is derived from the Latin of wanderer or pilgrim, I believe. And you wrote a book about bird names, didn't you? And where they came from, Mrs Moreau's warbler. Yeah, and, and as you say, peregrine is one of those words that came through from Latin via Norman French. It means pilgrim or wanderer because the young birds in particular tend to, to wander. You know, there's a few of these plover. I was looking at watching golden plover today, quite an unusual bird for the fields behind my home. And plover comes from the Latin um, pluvialis, which means to rain, as in la pluie in French. You know. So we have these wonderful names that go back in time to odd origins. And, you know, it's like being sort of linguistic detective writing that book. And it was an absolute joy to do. But yeah, Peregrine was one of the ones that at least we can say where it comes from. My favourite, I think, old name is Mavis for song thrush. Yes, well, we, when I was growing up, my nan used to, we didn't have Mavis thrush. I think that's a Northern England and Scotland thing. But we did, of course, have Jenny Wren, Tom Tit and Robin Redbreast. And it was yeah. only when I was writing the book that it occurred to me that, of course, the odd one out of those is Robin, because the name is the nickname. It's as if we were looking at wrens and saying, oh, I saw a nice Jenny today with a little cocktail. And you'd say, hang on, no, it's a wren. Well, we don't say there's a redbreast, do we? But it was originally Robin Redbreast and it was the nickname of the redbreast. Ah, and the nickname stuck. Yeah, exactly. All oh, right. So we're going to talk today about the five birds that mean the most to you. And I do remember hearing your run on Tweet of the Day a year or two ago, uh, and you talked about the coot, which thankfully didn't make it onto your list today, because I've given coots some stick on Twitter over the years, the ragy wee things with feet of nightmares, but you're quite partial to them, I believe. 
what I loved about this idea of the five birds was you're not choosing your favourite birds. It's like Desert Island Discs. People don't choose their favourite music. They choose music that means something to them. Yeah. And all these birds mean something. And Coot was very nearly bird number one. Because when I was a very young child, and I don't remember this, but my late mother used to tell me this, that at some point when I was two or three years old, she took me down to the river near where we lived in suburban West London to feed the ducks. And I said to her, what are those funny black ducks? And she said, I don't know, dear, but we've got a bird book at home. And to show my age, this was the Observer's Book of Birds. It was lucky because almost every bird in that book is illustrated in black and white. Yeah. So if it had been a kingfisher, I would have been like, oh, what's that then? Um, and that, that got me into it. But the bird I've actually chosen as my first bird... Bird number one. one, one. ..is the jackdaw. And that's because even before the coot incident that, that I think was really the catalyst, there is a photograph of me wearing the most extraordinary sort of toddler clothes that children were put in in the early 60s, holding my hand out to what my mother assumed must have been a tame jackdaw, because it's about three or four feet from me. It's probably the earliest photograph I have of myself, and there's a bird in it. And I just love that, you know. I love the fact that today I went out for a walk with my dog and I heard jackdaws flying overhead. And, you know, I couldn't even see them. They were too far away. And I just heard that classic jack-jack call. And that connects me, even if I don't necessarily realise it at the time, it connects me with all the jackdaws I've ever seen in this sort of unbroken lineage back to that er bird, the first bird, the jackdaw. So that's why that's my number one. Yeah, it's, it's fabulous that you've, the earliest photo of you actually is you with a bird and here you are having made a successful career out of birds and wildlife and the natural world. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's one of those funny things, isn't it? My friend Daniel Lazorio, who's my oldest birding companion, who's a professor at Sussex, claims that the first word he ever said was bird, which is really impressive, isn't it? I, I, I must check with his mother. Um <laughs> But, you know, so maybe it's not that good. But for me, I think this is the great thing about birds. Many years ago, Nick Hornby, great writer, wrote his first book, Fever Pitch. Yep. And it was a book about supporting Arsenal. Now, come on, who's going to buy that except Arsenal supporters? And yet everyone bought it. And they bought it because it wasn't really about supporting a football team at all. It was about being a man in his 30s, being slightly lost in life and finding this communal connection with other people and with with a sort of version of reality through his football team which is something a lot of men and women can can understand but he had this lovely moment in the book where he says something along the lines of people say well haven't you outgrown that you know it's sort of something you're obsessed with when you're a kid and he says to them what have you got that links you to your childhood what have you got that you still do today that matters to you as deeply as it did when you were a child? And he had football and I, Arsenal and I had birds. Yeah. And like so many of us, so many people listening to this podcast, even if they've only taken up birding later in life, if they think about it, they'll still remember encounters with birds when they were younger. And if you have been a lifelong birder like me, then you've got that sort of thread series of threads like a tapestry running back through your life to your earliest memories and for me as the older I get the more special those connections are.
one of the connections I have with a peregrine is seeing my first peregrine. It was a it was a dream bird for me. It was a bird I used to draw. It was a bird I read about in books, but never dreamt I would see. And then in the Lake District, I got taken to see one by the owner of a B&B we were staying in. He saw me looking at a peregrine on his wall and he said, oh, well, they're just a few miles away if you want to go and see one. And so he, he took me and saw my first peregrine, saw a stoop that day, you know. And um, so, yeah, these moments from childhood, even if you do drift away, they, they bring you back, these birds, don't they? Absolutely. I love jackdaws and we have quite a lot around us and they come to the to the feeders and I always think they're like the teenagers of the bird world. They hang out in groups. They sort of intimidate the smaller kids. They're all cheeky and jaunty and chattering on and got a funny story one of my friends he had a block chimney a few years ago so he got the roof around and he got up there into the, to the chimney stack and, and he fished out a jackdaw's nest which obviously isn't unusual but what was unusual was that this nest was made with various scraps of different things that aren't typical nest building material one of which was a, a full-on massive pair of y fronts <laughs> the jackdaw <laughs> must have stolen from a washing line or yeah. you know um, well, they're curious birds. Are they all corvids are curious? The kite does that. There's a line in Shakespeare when it says, when the kite builds, meaning builds her nest, look to your lesser linen, because kites are, are very well known for snatching, yeah, literally underwear. I mean, that's quite a common thing. Yeah. You've reminded me, I mean, it's this, these connections. You've reminded me when we moved down to Somerset 15 years ago, we moved into this 18th century former farmhouse and one of the chimneys seemed blocked and the guy came around one day to sort of help unblock it and I helped him and I had to go and completely change and wash afterwards. I was on my way out somewhere because we pulled out about 30 feet worth of twigs. <laughs> it's obviously jackdaws had just dropped twigs down there for probably 200 years. <laughs> <laughs> no one had ever bothered to clear out the fireplace but yeah you know so and they are you're right they're jaunty birds they're funny i love the fact that like many all crows actually and most um many many bird names are onomatopoeic in origin so you know rook crow raven raven you know and jackdaw i love because i think it's doubly onomatopoeic so i think it's jackdaw because you hear them flying over and they go jack jack dong so I wonder if it comes from that. Another theory is that the jack, as in jack snipe, means small. And the jackdaw oh. is the smallest crow. And again, it could be a nickname, you know, like Mavis Thrush and Robin Redbreast and Jenny Wren. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's lovely, these things, aren't they? These, these weird connections. Definitely. But they're great birds as well. And, and I, I love their sort of silvery heads and their piercing blue eyes. They're, they're cracking birds. Not everybody likes them, but, but I do. And, and clearly you do too. Yeah, so. I love them. Yeah, I love all corvids. Ravens over our house at the moment. Sorry, I'm trying to get more birds in here. We, <laughs> when I first moved here 15 years ago, literally didn't see a raven for almost a year. Now I hear them almost every day. They fly over the house, they tumble, you know, and they were in the field at the back of my house during lockdown last year in the spring. And there was a dead calf and about 35 ravens turned up. And they looked, they were bouncing around like something designed by a sort of animatronic engineer you know they didn't look like a a, a bird they look like some kind of sort of weird machine and they were squabbling and they tumble in the air and once I saw a raven fly past and you can try this with jackdaws as well and it was flying past me and I just I thought I'll try this so I went Arr! and it just turned its head and went Arr! Arr! back I can't go deep enough but it just called back to me it didn't break its stride in its fantastic and I thought that bird sees me as an equal 
Brilliant. I'm going to start talk, talking to jackdaws now. I'm going to be the, the crazy jackdaw guy in the village. Jackdaw whisperer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Right then, let's move on. Tell us about your second bird choice. Bird number two. two, two, two. My second bird choice is the great crested grebe. Coot and the jackdaw are pre-memory for me. I don't remember those. It was my mother told me I have the photograph. The great crested grebe, it's not quite the first bird I remember seeing, but I think it's the first special bird I remember wanting to see and not knowing if I would. I was eight years old and we went on a nature walk. Mrs Threlfall, class 3T from Saxon County Primary School in Shepparton. And we went to the gravel pits and we walked along this old footpath and I remember, I still, I can visualise this. I'm not a very visual person, but I can still visualise this memory. I looked to my left and swimming alongside me, I don't know, 50 feet away, was a great crusty green. And that weekend, my mother took me back. My mother's a very important influence in my life. She was a single parent um, when, frankly, there weren't any. Mm. And I was an only child. And my grandmother brought me up. My mother went back to work, but she... At weekends, she devoted her time to me. So if I said, I really want to go back to the pits to look for great Christie Greaves, okay, dear, we will. So we took my little friend Roger and we went back to the gravel pits and we not only found great Christie Greaves, we found a great Christie Greave with three chicks and it had two on its back, but one of them had got lost. It was round the corner and it was, it was peeping away, you know, that little distress call they do. And we sort of willed it to go round the corner and find this little chick and it did and then it came back you know that's a really vivid memory and and then later in life when I started finding out more about great crested greaves and when I wrote a book called a bird in the bush which is a social history of bird watching I discovered that they are central to three really important events in certainly in British history one of which a lot of people know was that great crested greaves were one of the birds that were made into accessories hats for extremely posh rich women and that the great crested grebes you know grebes are the most aquatic of all birds and that the feathers are extremely dense and warm so the body of the grebes was literally made into a hand muff to keep the, the ladies hands warm and the little the crests were used as tippets for hats so they were used as decorations and that anyway, it was a bird that declined hugely almost went extinct in Britain from the 1880s to about yeah. the 1920s and then another group of women, as you know, founded the RSBB and basically sorted out the group who were wearing the hats. And, and you know, the use of bird skins ended very quickly in, in, in fashion, in, at least in Britain and America. The second thing was one of the people who did the first ever survey of Great Crested Greaves, which was the first nationwide survey, I think, of any species, Tom Harrison realised when he was watching the birds that you couldn't ask them questions. You had to sort of observe their behaviour. And Tom Harrison became an anthropologist, very famous anthropologist, and invented a thing called mass observation, which is where teams of volunteers in the 30s and 40s would go and watch people. They'd go into their homes and they'd write down what was on their mantelpieces. They'd watch what they did. They'd write down what they had for tea. They'd write down what they called tea. Was it tea or supper or dinner? You know, all those things. And they formed this extraordinary archive, which now tells historians of what was life was really like for normal, ordinary working people at that time. And then the third thing which I love is that Julian, later Sir Julian Huxley, a very eminent, I think Nobel Prize winning scientist, certainly a very eminent scientist, took two weeks off in the summer of, I think, 1912 and watched 
some pairs of great crested greaves on Tring reservoirs and invented the science of animal behaviour. No one had ever studied wild birds and just again written down what they did. And he did that. And the whole, all my whole career at the BBC Natural History Unit, you know, that's all based on, all these programmes are based on animal behaviour, all the zoology degrees in Britain, you know, numerous endless books. And yet it all started with one man thinking, I know I'm going to go and watch Great Christie Greaves because they do interesting things, the courtship, the nesting behaviour, covering up of the eggs and all that. So, you know, so I think Great Christie Greaves, you know, they, they deserve a very high place. They're not the bird I'm going to put up against the peregrine, though, at the end. Ah, if, well. They, if I did, they'd win. <laughs> <laughs> but I've got an even better one. The other thing I like about Great Crested Greaves, or the other fact that I think is, is very interesting, is the fact that they're one of the birds that actually bounced back and started to do quite well at a time when other birds were starting to struggle, you know, roads were being built, houses were being built in the sort of 60s, the 70s, when there was this big boom. Well, the excavations led to gravel pits and then they flooded and Greaves took to them and then flourished, which... That's right. You know, yeah. amazing, and again, really. that's where I was brought up. My, I cut my birding teeth on gravel pits. And last year I wrote a book called The Accidental Countryside, which is all about places built for human need that wildlife takes over. And sometimes... Yeah, that includes things like churchyards and military sites like Salisbury Plain. But gravel pits and peat diggings, where I live now in Somerset, are an absolutely central part of this. And ironically, as you say, it's at a time where the proper countryside is being absolutely devastated and still is. Mm. Not entirely, but in a lot of places. Um, and these places become the hidden havens for wildlife. And I ended up writing quite personally in that book, which I didn't expect to do, about gravel pits because they meant so much to me. You know, had those gravel pits not been there and they literally built the suburban home, the semi-detached house I was brought up in, but had they not been there, I don't know that I would have got interested in birds. I think it was going there at the age of eight. And then those days we were allowed out, even though my grandmother was extremely um, protective. You know, we were allowed to basically romp around them in weekends and school holidays from the age of eight or nine. You know, I was always seeing birds, even if I wasn't out bird watching, I was aware that birds were there. And I think that was very important for me. Yeah, fantastic. Good old great crested grebe. A lot more important than I've given them credit for, I think, over the years. Yeah. And that fabulous looking birds as well obviously that's led to their downfall originally but they are mm. spectacular when you see one you know in full full pomp you know you can't help but watch for a while and if you're lucky enough to see them with the with those amazing little humbugs on the back then yeah you know it's a treat indeed and a couple of years ago we were down on the somerset levels and we actually saw the penguin dance which i think i saw when i was a kid but i certainly haven't seen since where they you know the one of them they shot apart and i said to my friend graham i said they're gonna they're gonna do it they're gonna do it and we watched and suddenly they sort of shot back underneath the water came up next to each other and lifted the weed and danced for about three seconds <laughs> we were beside ourselves with joy you know it's the most amazing moment and it's that classic thing of a common bird that you see every time you go down to the avalon marshes doing something amazing yeah and, and, and it is amazing. There's not many birds that put on a performance like that. Right. Let's move on to your third choice, which actually also has a bit of a checkered history when it comes to fashion. Tell us about bird number three. Bird number three. three, three. <laughs> yes. Well, 
bird number three is the little egret, which, yes, I'd, I'd missed that link. Yes, very obvious link between that and the Great Coastal Creed, because little egrets on this side of the Atlantic and snowy egrets, especially in America, were prized for what they call egret, their plume. I, I hesitate to say this, but of course, you do know the three egret songs, don't you? No. Yeah, there's uh, egrets. I've had a few. <laughs> yes. There's no egrets. Yeah. The Brothers. And my favourite, the French version, Je ne aigrette rien. <laughs> yeah, you're going to stop now, aren't you? Um, I saw four different species of egret standing together in one view the other day. Egret and heron, sorry. The cattle, the great white, the little and the grey heron. Fantastic. Um, and nowadays on the levels, you're more likely to see the three egrets before you see a grey heron. But I can remember, again, when little egrets were incredibly rare. And they were so rare that I, at the age of 10, 1970, my mother, grandmother and I went on holiday to a little seaside resort in Hampshire called Milford-on-Sea. And by then, my mother was taking me, you know, she was sort of picking a place to go on holiday that was near somewhere where we could go and watch birds. So we went to the forest and then we spent a day, she and I went off to Brown Sea Island and we had a guided walk with one of the probably volunteer wardens, I suspect. And this young lad, you know, he opened the hide door and we walked in and he opened the blind of the hide, you know, lifted it up. And there was this vision of white perched on a tree, this vision of this shining Purcell-like white creature. And I was like, and he went, yeah, oh, it's a little egret, you know, really rare bird. We've had a couple. It, was, it turned out 1970 was a very good year for little egrets. There'd been quite a few that year. But I think there'd been like 30 records. Yeah, they weren't an ultra rarity. And I didn't see another one again in Britain until 1989, which is when they invaded again. And what I also love about them, they have this ambivalence about them. All the egrets do. Why are they here? And why do they stay? Well, they're here for two reasons. One, because wetland habitats have been restored in Europe, but clearly also because of climate change. There is no question, I think, that these birds are moving north and able to survive our winters and, you know, do that because of climate change. And of course, because they travel in flocks, you're going to turn up and there's going to be a male and a female. So you're going to be able to breed. So, of course, they colonise much more effectively than many other rare birds. On the other side, as I've already mentioned, in Europe, we restored many wetlands. And of course, in Britain, where I live, the Avalon Marshes on the Somerset levels is probably the, you know, arguably one of the best places to watch birds and wildlife now in Britain. And 30 years ago, it was a post-industrial wasteland. It was piles of peat and holes in the ground filled with murky looking water. And it was turned into a series of nature reserves. And even when we moved here, and it's only 15 years ago, you know, certainly no great white egrets and no cattle egrets, and there weren't that many little egrets even then. So this is both a success story, but also a warning about complexity of environmental change. These birds are here because of climate change, but we've given them a home. If we hadn't got those wetlands, they would have gone back again. Yeah. And it's still a bird. I know this is true of lots of common birds. Goldfinches, good example, isn't it? If it was a rarity, people would be going mad over it. But it's quite hard nowadays not to look at a little egret, particularly if you get a good view of it, and not just stop for a moment to say, wow, that's a really beautiful bird. Yeah, they, they, they are striking, yeah. The plumes going on and everything. Yeah, and in summer, we're just getting to the point now where they'll get their plumes. The, the cattle egret to get that wonderful orange punk hairdo and the orange on the back. Um, but then <laughs> the great white egret do this really weird thing. We only noticed this when they moved here. They have a yellow bill 
when they're not breeding and it turns black when they're breeding, which is really weird. Mm. You'd think it would be the other way around. You know, again, I drove past one the other day. I mean, they'll, they'll stay on the side of the bank of what we call the Rhine. The, um, the ditches around here are called Rhines. And you can be cycling past. And if you don't sort of, you know, gesture or anything, the, the great whites and the Catholics will just stand there. <laughs> it's like, wow. You know, I'm still pinching myself, you know. But it's great because we run a, a thing called Somerset Birdwatching Holidays when there's not lockdown, my friend uh, Graham and Kay and I. And um, we take people out. And, of course, we forget that from most parts of Britain, even from obviously further north, there aren't that many little egrets. And where, we, you know, most people don't have cattle or great white egrets. So it's always lovely to show them a bird like that, particularly as we absolutely know we can now guarantee them. Whereas, you know, yeah. even five years ago, it'd be like, oh, wow, you know, we've got a great white egret. And now it's like there is. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing to me, and and I think, like you say, in the north of England, where we're still behind you, little egrets are relatively common now, and they breed locally. But I I remember fifteen years ago or so twitching my first little egret in Hartlepool, and sure enough, I'll get little egrets most times I go up the coast. Cattle egret, though, mm. we had one in Northumberland last summer, so that it'll yeah, it'll they follow. Come. They come. I mean, the first time I ever saw them here, I was taking the kids somewhere. They were about three or four years old, and they were three cattle in a field and I got really excited it's quite near my home and I got I was driving down to Ham Wall taking them for a walk and we walked along and I met a birder I know with a, we watching something else and I said Look, I don't know whether to mention this but you know because it's breeding season I said three cattle egrets on Teela Moor and he went oh yeah they've been there for ages <laughs> and it's like all right thanks for telling me and of course they <laughs> hadn't put it on the the website because you know you didn't want people to notice you know and when they first bred people were very you know we mustn't mention their breeding and someone got funny about it being it ended up on the one show or spring watch and it's like it's fine they're going to be millions of them soon yeah. i mean the, the record yeah. count here i think it was last spring or last winter was 220 in four or five different flocks that was someone who drove very quickly from one to the other to check they weren't duplicating and they look so funny, Catalogues. They, they've got this sort of little old man look, where little egrets are, and great white egrets are sort of impossibly elegant. Catalogues just are. They're just like very functional birds. <laughs> but they, they're probably the world's most successful large bird. They, they've been seen in all continents, including Antarctica. And there's only two other species that you can say that for, Arctic tern and my fifth bird. That intrigues you, doesn't it? And they colonised. I think they're the only species to have colonised the Americas from the east. Back in the early 20th century, there was a big storm and unusually they were blown across from east to west. And now they're all the way through South America and Central America and most of you know Southern North America. Yeah, amazing. So I'll look forward to those little old men coming up my way in coming years. <laughs> Brilliant. So let's move on to your fourth choice, bird number four. Bird number four. Well, I'm getting sentimental now because the bird number four is a tree creeper. Now, I, I do love tree creepers. They're a lovely bird. They're always unexpected, aren't they? You don't go looking for a tree creeper. You don't expect to see one. In a way that, say, if you go into a wood, you're probably going to hear nuthatch if they're around. But for me, the reason the tree creeper is on my list is that before I met Suzanne, my wife, she was a nurse and she used to work shifts and she and a friend used to on their days off would go for walks and one day they saw this bird and they were like what on earth is that and Jackie her friend was a bit more keen on birds and had a bird book at home 
and identified it as a tree creeper, and it obviously was. And Jackie said, oh, you know, isn't that lovely? We ought to take binoculars next time. So I think they got a pair of binoculars or borrowed one and took it out and they'd see birds. And then Jackie noticed in BBC Wildlife an advert for a birding weekend at the Field Studies Council at Box Hill in Surrey, run by me. So Jackie and Suzanne signed up for this. And I can still remember this. But the first night, I was quite nervous. I'd I'd led one bird tour once with my dear friend Derek Moore, the late lamented Derek Moore, in Jordan. And my mother had died uh, and I had to come back early. And two weeks afterwards... I signed up for this weekend and I thought, shall I pull out? And I thought, no, you know, because my mother had died. It was really quite, you know, obviously it was traumatic. Um, and I thought, oh, no, come on. You know, you've signed up for this. You said you'll do it. You better go. So I went along and was looking around thinking, I hope there's a nice range of people on this. I hope it's not all, how can I put this politely, blokes like I am now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, complaining that we haven't seen lots of rarities and whatever, you know. And it wasn't. Uh, but I met these young lads and I said, oh, hi, hi, guys. You know, you're on the birding weekend. They went, no, no, we're doing grasses, grass identification, grasses and sedges. I was like, all right, because there were several courses going on. And then I saw this woman and she threw her head back and laughed. And I thought, hope she's on the course. And she yeah. was, and that's Suzanne, and I married her. Complicated story, which we won't go into, but we did get married and we're still married. And so the tree creepers, this lovely bird. And a couple of years ago, we were up at the Grand Arms in Scotland and I do weeks there. And we took the kids up and I was taking people out birding. And one day when we had a time off, I, we all went to Lock Garden and we were looking at, you know, hand feeding coal tits, which is lovely. And the crested tits were coming down and then met this photographer. And we were chatting and he said, oh, I've just got this photo of a tree creeper. And I said, oh, well, how lovely. And he showed it to me and he was like, and he said, well, I'm not a professional. And I was like, you look like you are to me, mate, because it was a brilliant photo of a tree creeper and a crested tip. And then his car broke down and we said, well, don't worry, we'll give you a lift back into Grand Town and you can get the garage out. So we did. And I, when, he, when I dropped him off, I said, I don't suppose you could just send me a digital copy of that. Would you mind if I printed it up? And he said, no, of course not. And he, good to his word, he sent me the photo of the tree creeper and the crested tip and I had them framed for Suzanne for her birthday. Because, you know, that's a romantic birthday present, isn't it? <laughs> so, um, I mean, you were saying that, that that encounter with birds led to eventually, and it did take a while for my career in birding and all that, but, but it also led to, you know, me meeting my life partner and having three teenage children, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, so, you know, it ch- that changed my life. So the tree creeper is there for that reason. It's that sort of, you know, I am an old softy at heart and it's there to remind me of the importance of chance in life because if she hadn't seen the tree creeper, they wouldn't have signed up for the course and if they hadn't signed up for the course, we wouldn't have met and got married and, you know. Fantastic. It. Yeah, a little totem bird then. Yeah, but they all are. They've all got that meaning to me, you know. And so many others have, you know, if you've given me 50 birds, I could have found reasons to choose them. Yeah. I saw two tree creepers today, actually, and I don't see them that often, like you say. But yeah, just two in the garden on, well, I'm saying on the garden, I can see it from my garden. A big tree in front of the house. And yeah, there was there was two going up and down it. And they are, I know they've often been talked about in that sort of little mouse kind of way, haven't they? But they, they really are almost mouse-like, the way they, they sort of uh, go about their business. A lovely little clean belly. Yeah, beautiful birds. Stunning. Right, come on then. You've alluded a couple of times to your fifth bird. So tell us about bird number five. Bird number five. five. 
Well, my fifth bird is the other bird that's been seen on all seven continents. And in fact, now Cataliga, of course, has been split into Western and Eastern. Then actually, it's one of the only birds that's done this. And it's the only songbird that's done this. And it's the swallow. And last year, I wrote a biography of the swallow. I've done a series of bird biographies. And I started with the robin because of Christmas. Our mutual friend David Linder, of course, had done that wonderful Britain's favourite bird poll, and that gave me the idea to write a book on the robin. So I then did the wren. So I did Britain's favourite bird. Then I did Britain's commonest bird. And then I thought, I don't want to do another resident bird because I'm, I'm telling a similar story. The, the robin and the wren are great. They've got fantastic behaviour and wonderful culture. But, you know, I wanted something different. And I thought, I know, I'll do the swallow. And I came across a little book by a man called Collingwood Ingram, who was a great botanist and ornithologist. And when he was in his, I think his 90s, he produced a book called The Migration of the Swallow. And in it, he says something like this little book is about a bird that is undoubtedly the best known and the best loved bird in the whole world, the swallow. And I thought, really? And then I thought, actually, of course, he's dead right, because best known swallows are very common breeding birds from Alaska to Japan, the entire northern hemisphere, the temperate regions and indeed boreal regions of the northern hemisphere. And then they migrate. The American birds, of course, go to Central and South America. The um, British and European birds mostly go to Africa. The Eastern European and Asian birds go to South Asia and a few get to Australia. And this one bird turned up in Antarctica. So they're one of the great global wanderers and they mean something particularly to people in the Northern Hemisphere. They have this extraordinary link with spring. One swallow does not make a summer, as Aristotle said. It goes back to Aesop's fables. They're on the hieroglyphs of the Egyptian tombs. So they have, I'm always fascinated by the combination of a bird's biology and its cultural importance. To me, it's like there's two birds that overlap. So there's the real robin, wren and swallow that has a biological story to tell. And then there's the cultural one the way we respond to these birds. Yeah. And they're, they're often related. Of course, the reason we respond to the swallow coming in spring is that it's a very visible migrant. It, you know, it's, it's about a third as common as the willow warbler. Willow warblers are the commonest migrant by far, but no one's heard of them, have they, if they're not birders? Yeah. But then I have a confession to make, and the confession is that when I lived in London, which I did for the first, more or less, the first 45 years of my life, swallows meant nothing to me. Yes, if I went birding in April to the local reservoir, I might see a migrating swallow. But of course, they don't breed in London. They don't, you know, they're not a meaningful thing. Swift was the bird. Swift was my favourite bird. I feel, I feel like I'm being unfaithful to Swifts by using the word was. Because Swifts are fantastic, amazing creatures. And if you'd asked me this 10 years ago, I, Swift would have been number one on this list, by far. But when the first swallow comes back, I now shed a tear. You know, it's that moment of... Wow, because for me, you know, I've become as if David's the urban birder and I used to be the suburban birder, I'm now the, the rural birder. So so swallows have become my special bird. And they're the so they're the best loved bird in the world because of course everyone thinks they're theirs. We talk mm -hmm. about our swallows coming back. Mm -hmm. But I went to South Africa last January and they talk about their swallows coming back. And we say, don't we? Trick question. If I say to you, Kit. Where do swallows go for the winter? You're going to say Africa. Yeah. 
And you're right, of course they go to Africa, but they don't go there for the winter, do they? They go there for the spring and summer. Yeah, true. And everywhere I went, I was there for 12 days in South Africa, I saw swallows. There's a figure I quoted in my book that someone drove through South Africa and did a sort of transect. And they thought, I'll count swallows as I go. And there's about a dozen species of swallow there, which probably five or six are quite common. And 97% of the swallows they saw were barn swallows. And I went to the roost of these barn swallows. Back in, when would it have been? About 2005, FIFA announced that the Soccer World Cup in 2010 would be held in South Africa. And that was a great moment. It was a great moment, you know, post-apartheid. Nelson Mandela was in tears. He held up the World Cup. It was all very special. It nearly destroyed the roost because they decided to build an airport called King Shaka International Airport outside Durban. And it was a mile and a half from the biggest swallow roost in South Africa. All right. And it's a reed bed with up to three million swallows. But they think possibly up to 10 million use it during the course of a winter. Wow. Because migrants come through. And so I went there and I witnessed what was probably the most incredible bird spectacle I've ever seen, with the sky just filled with swallows looking basically like gnats. It's not like the starling murmuration. If you're not using binoculars, you can barely see them because they, ju they just are completely filling the sky. But of course, they're so tiny and they don't flock together in the same way. But then they do shoot down into the reeds. And it was just the most incredible thing. And I got a new understanding of why swallows matter, not just to us, because they're not a parochial bird. They're a global traveller and they travel through all these countries and they mean so much to the people who see them. The irony was when I wrote the book, I looked back oh, all my bird notes traveling around the world with Bill Oddie and various other presenters over the years and filming and going on bird trips and leading tours. I looked through all my notes and virtually everywhere I'd ever been, apart from, I think, the Falkland Islands and Antarctica, Swallow was in the bird list. So I always keep a list of what I see. But I couldn't remember seeing swallows in any of these places. I could remember seeing all the exotic species of swallow I saw in Africa or South America, but barn swallow was just like, tick, yeah, seen it. Yeah. Except for one. And that bird was on an island which is younger than I am. And this island is called Sertsi, and it's off the south coast of Iceland. And it emerged from the sea in early 1963 as a result of a volcanic eruption. And when Bill Oddie and I went to Iceland to film, we managed somehow to get permission to go to this island. We were flown in there by the Coast Guard, dropped off for two hours, and we're filming various things. We're filming the rock and the Glaucus skull colony. And, you know, it's extraordinary place where they've measured how life colonises a new land. And then this bird flew over our heads. And I said to Bill, hang on, that's a swallow. And we looked at it and we said, well, didn't think you got swallows in Iceland because there's like five songbirds on the Iceland, you know, resident list. I think it's red pole, probably wren, meadow pipit, snow bunting and red wing. Right. Literally, that's it, you know. And we looked and we went, it's a swallow. So we went back and checked. And of course, swallows, they're a vagrant basically to Iceland. So this was the bird that was like, right, not content with breeding to virtually the entire northern hemisphere. One European country I don't breed in. Right, I'm going. <laughs> and it was there. And I just thought, that's a bird. That's a And Bill, it's Bill's favourite bird as well, the swallow. So I love that. I love that we've got that connection now. So the swallow has to be the one. I remember this year, it was a lovely warm morning. I put, I put my shorts on today and my summer shirt and I walked outside and a swallow flew over. And I was like, yeah, you're back. 
And as Ted Hughes wrote about the Swift, he said, they're back, which shows the globe still working. Towards the end of the Swallow book, I write a lot about climate change and about the fact that even though the Swallow is ludicrously common, I think it's about 190 million of them, and extremely widespread and very adaptable, yeah, well, so was the passenger pigeon, so was the Eskimo curlew. You know, migrants are uniquely at risk from the climate emergency, and swallows could be in trouble if things change en route, on their wintering grounds, where they breed. And I then started thinking of the swallow as a bird that could teach us a lesson. And we've had the last year, haven't we? Well, the last few years now, but particularly the last year, of, I don't know how to describe this really without being offensive, of governments and politicians who are basically taking the piss. And the whole Brexit thing, you know, it's, it, it's all about little England. It's all about insularity. It's all about funny foreigners. It's all about putting up borders and barriers and boundaries, as we are now seeing, and not taking responsibility. And, and, and yet we have this bird that flies across every nation and brings joy to us. And yet we can't learn a simple lesson. I know it sounds a bit trite, but a simple lesson that this bird thinks that the globe is open, that boundaries don't matter. And yet we don't seem to be able to learn that. And I, you know, I just think it's, it's very sad. But also it gives me some tiny glimmer of hope that we will come to our senses and we will realise that the people who are trying to make us think in a certain way about people who are not like us are wrong. And I feel this very passionately. You know, my mother, she was from a generation who could have been most of her friends and neighbours were, you know, I can put it bluntly, racist. Mm -hmm. Racist, sexist, you know, that's what people were like back then. That's what a lot of people are like now. And she wasn't. She always taught me certain values. And the values were that people may look different and act different and behave different, but they're people. And we don't judge and we don't think we're better or worse than them. And I think that what I love about the world that you're in, the people you've been interviewing on your podcast, the people you and I know, the people we don't even know, but we, we connect with them perhaps on social media, is that basically they have the right attitude in life. We may disagree on certain things, we may disagree on some political issues or environmental issues, how we should do something. There's a lot of debates at the moment on social media about things like rewilding, but we're all pulling in the same direction. Yeah. And a lot of people aren't doing that. Sorry, that's the party political broadcast. It's a lot for the swallow to carry on its shoulders, but I can see where you're coming from. And, you know, when you when you think about the swallow in those terms and, you know, start to go down the, the route of thinking about, you know, where things are going wrong in the country and, and why, then you can see similarities with birds that come and go. And, you know, we we do talk, like you said earlier, our swallows are back, but they're not our swallows. They're just, they're just here yeah. for a few months, actually. They spend more time somewhere else. Yeah, well, they're ours and they're everyone's. And that's yes. lovely. When the Tweet of the Day series came out, my dear friend and colleague and co-writer Brett Westwood got a letter. They got a letter sent to the production team because they were doing birds like, I think he did Red-Eyed Vireo as a vagrant, he did Melodious Warbler. And someone wrote and said, yeah, why are you doing, sort of the Radio Times, why are you doing these foreign birds? You know, we want proper British birds in there. And Brett wrote this fantastically brilliant reply that was just this side of not getting him sacked. <laughs> which basically said, hmm, cuckoo, how long does it spend in Britain? About eight weeks. How long yeah. does it spend on route? About another eight weeks. I may have got this slightly wrong, but not far. How long does it spend in Africa? Mm, about 10 months. <laughs> no, 
months, nine, eight months, you know. In what way is that a British bird? And yet, of course, it's a British bird, but it's not just a British bird, you know, and that's that's the point I'm trying to make about the swallow. It's, it's everyone's. Absolutely. You know, it, it's the good side of globalisation. You know, and going to Africa, someone said to me there, we love swallows because they mean it's going to rain. And I thought, gosh, if you were in Britain and you said, well, when a bird turns up, it's going to rain, you'd be like, oh, I hate that bird. <laughs> of course, in South Africa, particularly with climate change, they quite like a bit of rain. We'd be killing them, nailing them to doors to stop the rain. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I feel I feel a bit bad for the swallow. You mentioned swifts. Actually, you've gone the opposite way, I think, to a lot of people who get into birds because swallows were always a, a bird that everybody loves. But I, I do kind of feel that swifts have taken over as the emotional harbinger of spring, summer. 80% of people in Britain more now, I think, live in towns and cities, as I did for most of my life. So I've got a huge empathy with the swift and with people who love the swift because it was the bird that for me when it would scream over Finsbury Park where I'd barely seen a bird for you know three months I had a young family when I lived in Finsbury Park 30 years ago or more you know and and so the swift really was my connection with nature at a time where I wasn't really going out I didn't have time to add a busy life so the swallow has become it's the bird of my second half of my life but the swift was the bird of the first half yeah I think I've been guilty of not admiring them as much over recent years in favor of swifts but they're incredible birds, and you don't get many bright blue birds either. <laughs> You've got the yeah. blue tit and the kingfisher, but then swallows, I mean, you know, they're, they're stunning. No, but aren't all birds beautiful? That's the thing in the end. Some more than others, though, as this Some podcast uh, is, is proving every week, I think. So we've talked about the five birds that mean the most to you and, and some cracking choices there. But as you know... Every guest on Golden Grenades has to choose one of these five to go beak to beak with my peregrine in a frankly ridiculous and very reductive best bird battle. Which of these five species are you going to pit against my peregrine falcon? There was no doubt it has to be the swallow. I figured. I now have the unenviable task of deciding which of these two birds trumps the other. And people who have listened before will know that the peregrine has a fairly checkered history in these battles. And that's usually because everybody's got a very, very good reason as to why their favourite bird is so special to them. And you've made a very strong argument for the swallow there. And I think when you put the significance that you've attributed to the swallow, and you've actually written a whole book a biography of the swallow. I think it would be particularly harsh of me to say that the peregrine's better. No, you're wrong. So I'm going to declare this week the winner of the Golden Grenade's best bird battle is the swallow. And that's very gracious um, of you, Kate, and I, uh, I'm very honoured. And yeah, basically, the swallow is going to solve our entire geopolitical issues in the next 50 years. So, yeah, we yeah. follow the swallow. <laughs> Let's just hope the government pick up on that. Thanks so much for coming on, Stephen. It's been an absolute pleasure. Could you tell us what you've got in the pipeline? Yeah, I'm, I'm currently writing the next biography, and I've decided to choose a bird that isn't really regarded as a bird. It's regarded as a national treasure, the sort of bird equivalent of the Queen, Sir David Attenborough and Dame Judi Dench. It is the swan. 
But the, my next book that's actually coming out is a book I wasn't meant to do. I, I finished The Swallow literally at the moment lockdown started back in March. And I thought, I am going to take advantage of this. I'm going to bird in my garden and my local patch. And I'll just keep notes on that. And I kept notes. And then I thought, I'm going to write this up into a diary because it feels like a unique time. And it coincided, of course, with spring. So Skylarks with Rosie, a Somerset spring. Rosie is my lovely red fox Labrador. I take around the, the loop, as I call it, and, and we watch the birds. And the Skylarks were a particularly prominent part of that spring. It's interesting that I had to read it out loud for an audio book. And I was surprised at how much politics there is in it. You may not be surprised having heard me ranting tonight, but <laughs> my I've become much more political since lockdown started and for a number of reasons. I think it's one of the most honest books I've ever written because it just happened. And so, yeah, it's a lockdown nature diary. Basically. There'll be a lot of them, I think. Um, but uh, we'll see. So that comes out in mid-March. Fantastic. Well, Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today, but I think that's all we've got time for. Thanks for listening, everybody. Do join me again next week, where my special guest will be designer and animator Will Rose. Until then, bye for now.